to The American Vandal, a podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies, devoted to sharing with you some of the programming we produce here at Elmira College, where the center is headquartered, and a few miles away at Quarry Farm, where Samuel Clemens and his family spent more than 20 summers. Nestled on East Hill, looking down over the city of Elmira, Mark Twain wrote Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Prince and the Pauper, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and many other novels, stories, essays, travel books, and plays. Samuel Clemens's grandnephew donated Quarry Farm to Elmira College, founding the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Our mission is to produce and support scholarship about Mark Twain, American literature, American humor, and American history. I'm Matt Siebel, resident scholar and at the Center for Mark Twain Studies and editor of MarkTwainStudies.org. In this inaugural season, we'll be hearing from historians, journalists, digital humanists, and media theorists. We'll learn about Mark Twain's relationship with the author of Dracula, about the intersections of humor and imperialism in Twain's time and our own, about the political history of Hawaii, or the Sandwich Islands, as they were called when Mark Twain visited them in the 1860s, and about retracing Twain's 1895 Round the World Lecture Tour. Stay tuned. But our first episode is drawn from a paper which will be part of the Viral Twain panel at the Virtual C-19 Conference on Saturday, October 17th. To learn more about the conference, which you can attend, check out the links in the show notes or visit marktwainstudies.org. In this episode, I'll introduce you to Twain's agent and publicist, a man named James Redpath, who represented a number of the most celebrated Americans of the 19th century, including the anti-slavery activist and guerrilla captain, who sometimes gets credited with starting the Civil War. During the first three decades of Samuel Clemens's life, the United States were sutured together by two networks, a transportation network of railroads and a communication network of periodicals, primarily newspapers. From 1835 to 1865, more than 30,000 miles of rail were laid in the United States. It was an indelicate operation, which left scars on more than just the topography. The railroads bound a vast nation together, allowing it to leverage its geographic diversity to economic and diplomatic advantage. The railroad also, indirectly, fostered a shared aspiration to cultural cohesion. The success of commuter rail relied upon travelers believing that at the other end of the line lay communities of people with whom they had something in common. The other emergent network grew just as rapidly. More than 4,000 new periodicals were launched between 1830 and 1860. These produced in the final year before the Civil War, 928 million issues. Multiple newspapers served even small municipalities and were tailored to geographic, demographic, religious, and political niches. The Jacksonian print revolution created a communication infrastructure that had the potential to facilitate cultural cohesion across the vast territory, 
but resisted that cohesion by providing the newly literate population with a vast array of choices, which tended to foster and ingrain divisions. These two networks combined to make possible an enduring American archetype, the celebrity. The celebrity promised to fulfill the communal desire for cultural cohesion. For most of the first century of U.S. nationhood, the only public figures who reached anything approximating national fame were presidential candidates and military commanders. Mark Twain was part of this first generation of civilian celebrities, created foremost by their fellow Americans' longing for collective experiences which mitigated the terror of rapid technological change. But the social bonds we form via the mutual consumption of mass culture are neither easy to create nor particularly durable. Celebrities are not always drivers of consensus. Twain spent the formative years of his career riding the rails with his publicist, James Redpath, who made John Brown infamous. What follows is an examination of how Redpath came to know things about the emergent U.S. mass media, which would ultimately benefit all of his clients, though none more than Mark Twain. Mary Hawes was a Southern belle. She resided in Richmond, Virginia, the city which would become the capital of the Confederacy. Her family enslaved people and were committed members to the cult of denialism based upon shielding bourgeois Southerners, particularly women, from the realities of enslavement. As a teenager, Hawes was subjected to waves of propaganda which suppressed any account of the violence and exploitation necessary to perpetuate a plantation economy. Her family subscribed to local and regional publications that portrayed slaveholders as chivalrous, their slaves as grateful, and northern abolitionists as godless meddlers bent on destroying their agrarian utopia. As Hawes herself put it, all right-minded Virginians acknowledge the duty to subscribe to such native publications. Mary Hawes thus spent her formative years in what we now recognize as a filter bubble or echo chamber, consuming only media which had been carefully curated by pro-slavery public publishers. By all accounts, including her own, Hawes aspired to become the ideal Southern woman portrayed in this literature. She and her younger sisters were tutored in music, romance languages, and Victorian manners. They attended Renaissance theatrical productions and danced at formal balls. Mary Hawes dreamed of marrying a gallant young man who wore a sword on his dress uniform and thereafter bearing his white sons. The culture machine of the antebellum South persuaded her generation that they were the heirs to an American aristocracy, and abolitionists were jealously trying to deny them their birthright. 
Hawes was so captivated by the Southern literary tradition that at the age of 16, she began carving out several hours every day to secretly work on her own novel, deploying the popular formulas. Eventually, she started submitting selections of her writing for publication under aliases. And in 1853, under the pseudonym Marion Harland, she won a writing contest sponsored by Southern Era magazine. Though she was 22 years old, in patriarchal Virginia, a young unmarried woman could not make financial claims without a male guardian to act as witness and chaperone. Mary's father knew nothing of his daughter's literary ambitions. To her surprise, he became her first advocate. When the manuscript of her first novel was tersely rejected by John Reuben Thompson, future editor of the New York Post, George Hawes paid for its publication out of his own pocket. Thus, the book she began in secret, titled Alone, came to be printed and sold in a single Richmond bookstore, where, in the spring of 1854, it was purchased on a whim by a 20-year-old Scottish immigrant and freelance journalist. James Redpath carried this obscure novel, as well as his Colt pistol, a few blocks south to the Hollywood Cemetery. He planned to read until the crowds dispersed, and then, once darkness fell, to commit suicide. In the pages of Alone, he found a depressive young hero named Morton Lacey, with whom he immediately identified. After being rejected by his paramour, Mr. Lacey, heartbroken and despondent, is goaded into a duel. Knowing that he faces almost certain death, he sends suicide notes to his friends, who manage to rescue him at the proverbial last moment, when the bullets are already in the air. While much of the novel is what one would expect from a 16-year-old reared on Walter Scott, the duel scene is followed by sober meditations on fate, honor, and the precariousness of life. Then, even more unexpectedly, by Mr. Lacey's abrupt and unromantic death from a fever contracted just after pledging his spared life to Christian philanthropy. With this ironic twist, Marion Harlan shows that by being born again, Mr. Lacey may have saved his own soul, but without performing a single act of charity for anybody less fortunate. These passages, comprising the book's 16th chapter, worked upon Redpath as no previous literature had. He holstered his pistol and left Hollywood Cemetery. He empathized with Mr. Lacey, whom said, I am convinced that my life has been spared for some important end, and I will work it out whenever providence designates the ways and means of its accomplishment. Youth and health and energy are almost omnipotent, and I am young and strong and willing. A few days later, Redpath wrote to Mary Hawes via the bookstore where he had faithfully purchased her novel. You will make your mark upon the age, he predicted, and promised... I write to pledge myself to do all in my power to forward your literary interests. I have influence in more than one quarter, and you will hear from me again. Hawes initially dismissed Redpath's queer epistle as one of those odd communications from odd people, 
which those who write for the public, particularly women, are bound to receive. She and her father agreed that Mr. Redpath might be slightly demented. They did not suspect he possessed any power to keep his pledge, and they expected, perhaps hoped, never to hear from him again. But then came the clippings, a tide of clippings, not from one newspaper, but from papers spread across a dozen states. In her autobiography, Marion Harlan remembers, not a week passed in which he did not send me a clipping from some paper containing a direct or incidental notice of my book or work or personality. She had, unwittingly, employed the greatest publicist of his generation. Redpath was a media prodigy. At 20, he was able to see the rapidly changing playing field of U.S. periodical literature, as well as the most powerful newspaper editors in New York City. And unlike them, he moved freely across the continent with little concern for his own reputation or personal profit. Aided by the newspaper databases of the 21st century, we can tentatively reverse-engineer Redpath's manic campaign to make Marion Harland the new star of the South. This campaign was built upon three things, mobility, anonymity, and intuition into the psychology of newspaper production and consumption. Redpath never stayed in any city for more than a few weeks, sometimes just a matter of days. Antebellum newspapers had created a gig economy in which men who were knowledgeable about the trade were never involuntarily unemployed. Redpath could do much of the labor which publishers frequently found in short supply. He could report and write copy. He could edit and set type. He could solicit advertising. He could run, he could run a press. He could make himself useful in almost any printing office with no additional training. He was a godsend to newspapers, appearing as if from nowhere, ready to do whatever work was required, and departing once that work was done, demanding modest wages and no credit. Every paper was in constant need of filler, short blurbs to occupy the column space left blank once the type had been set for that day's features, advertisements, and other regular content. Redpath was adept at producing filler often in passing imitation of the house style, and by this means snuck allusions to Harlan's novel into the papers he temporarily worked for. In many of the places Redpath visited during the remainder of 1854, there soon appeared classified advertisements for this obscure novel, often including lavish praise from faraway critics and the suggestion that the book might be obtained at a local bookseller. His scheme was simple. The endorsements had been written either by Redpath or by members of the growing network of newspaper men who owed him favors. They appeared in real, reputable papers, whose headquarters were separated by hundreds of miles. Why would anybody suspect they originated from a single source? Those who read the classifieds would get the impression that a transcontinental literati had fallen for this Lady of Richmond. If they called upon the bookshop named in the advertisement, however, they would find it sold out of her novel. This was the next step in the grift. It was as if the stores couldn't keep the book on their shelves. 
Faced with repeated requests, the bookseller would write to the small Virginia publisher, who was always conveniently named in Redpath's ad. Within a matter of months, Redpath had created almost single-handedly the impression that the nation was clamoring for the debut work of this mysterious Marion Harland, whose appearance and personality he occasionally took the liberty of describing, though they had never met. Alfred Morris, the owner of the shop near Hollywood Cemetery where Redpath had purchased his copy of a loan, could not keep up with the orders coming in from out of state. He had already printed a dozen editions of the novel when, in early 1855, the New York City publishing house J.C. Derby purchased the rights to a loan and Harlan's forthcoming second novel, The Hidden Path. Her awkward admirer had proven himself to be, as Harlan put it, her dauntless knight, securing for her the exceedingly rare opportunity to pursue a literary career. And she seized it. Over the next 70 years, Harland, later known by her married name, Mary Virginia Turhune, would publish nearly a book a year, while also writing hundreds of stories and columns for popular magazines, like Goody's Lady Book and Ladies' Home Journal. James Redpath's pro bono promotional campaign raises an important question about the political economy of mass media, one which would not be considered by economists for another century. Can you manu manufacture demand? To what extent was Redpath merely a commercial intermediary somebody who recognizes an untapped market and contrives to deliver a scarce product to an eager public? And to what extent was Redpath himself a tastemaker, by sheer tenacity creating a market for Harlan's work regardless of its merit? In the ensuing decades, while political economists remained largely oblivious, practicing capitalists of all stripes came to regard controlling the narrative as essential to survival in all industries. Redpath would remain at the forefront of a burgeoning professional class whose expertise was managing and, when possible, manipulating the mass media on behalf of the individuals and institutions for whom they worked. While I'm sure Redpath's appreciation for Marion Harlan's novel was genuine, as he put it, Chapter 16 saved my life, I do not believe his ensuing efforts on her behalf were purely selfless. James Redpath was warming up. In 1854, he successfully manufactured a minor literary celebrity. That was for practice. In 1855, he planned to start a civil war. A hint at Redpath's true purpose, the philanthropy to which he pledged himself on that March afternoon at Hollywood Cemetery, is contained in his first letter to Harland. In the midst of effusively complimenting her writing, Redpath interjects, I detest both your politics and your theology. What Redpath detested was slavery. He laid out what he called his creed in a preface to his first memoir, The Roving Editor, published two years later. Not only was he opposed to the extension of slavery, he called for its complete and immediate ab abolition. He was not, like many Bostonian abolitionists, committed to nonviolence. He considered slavery a state of perpetual war, 
and was prepared to slay every man who attempted to resist the liberation of the slave. He believed not only in emancipation, but in citizenship and suffrage for the formerly enslaved. Moreover, he was in favor of not only abolishing the curse, but making reparation for the crime. Those are his words. The Negroes, I hold, have not merely the inalienable inalienable right to be free, but the legal right of compensation for their hitherto unrequited services to the South. Such a creed made Redpath a radical, even among anti-slavery Republicans. It is not clear when he adopted militant abolitionism, but in the roving editor, he suggests that his conversion may have begun in Hollywood Cemetery the moment he put away his pistol. The cemetery, Redpath admits, was the very first place in Richmond I visited. I wondered at the absence of all headstones to colored persons. In every southern city that I have visited since, the whites and the slaves and free people of color have separate places of internment. I wonder now, if heaven likewise is constructed and arranged with special reference to this hostility of races and conditions of life. Directly after his aborted suicide, Redpath began documenting evidence of cruelty and injustice in Richmond and other cities he's visited. Over the next year, he crisscrossed the South, simultaneously exploring the conditions of enslaved people and the institutions which justified those conditions. I could hear of the untimely death of 10,000 slaveholders without a sigh or an expression or a feeling of regret, Redpath confessed. Clearly, he had little sympathy for those who personally and purposefully enslaved people. But especially after a visit to Savannah in September of 1854, Redpath began to take a more generous view of the many Southerners who, like Mary Hawes, were otherwise complicit in slavery's persistence. He wrote, I saw so many demoralizing pro-slavery influences brought to bear on their intellects, from their cradle to their grave, that from hating them, I began to pity them. After residing a few months in slave states, he was lifting the veil over the political and cultural machinery that made otherwise humane men and women indifferent to the rights of the African race. As he put it, the press, the pulpit, the bench, the bar, and the stump conspire with a unity of purpose and pertinacity of zeal, which is no less lamentable than extraordinary to eradicate every sentiment of justice and brotherhood from their hearts. They sincerely believe wrong to be right and act on that unhappy conviction. They know not what they do. Preachers tell them that slavery is a God-planted institution. Lawyers, that it is at the apple of the eye of the federal constitution. Jurists, that it is the key and cornerstone of a rational and conservative freedom. Politicians, that it is the prolific source of our national greatness and the surest guarantee for the continuance of stable prosperity. 
while the press, by its false and perverted record of passing events, represents every enemy of pro-slavery domination as a foe to the South, as seeking to rob and to subdue the people of the slaveholding states, and thus teaches that fidelity to their peculiar, patriarchal, domestic iniquity is the sum and substance, the alpha and omega of man's duty to his country. Redpath had discovered the filter bubble, which had been erected to preserve the loyalty of liberal-minded Southerners. In the roving editor, his footnotes, he footnotes a passage from Marion Harlan's alone to exemplify the ignorance which well-meaning Virginians were kept in. One of the more gallant characters says of plantation slaves, they are the happiest being upon the globe. They have a kind and generous master, ever, every comfort and health, good nursing when ill, their church and Bible and their Savior, who is also ours. The slave lies down at night, every want supplied, his family as well cared for as himself. Redpath had slept in the barracks with enslaved men who had been contracted to the Manchester and Wilmington Railroad in North Carolina. He could describe the conditions under which they actually lay down at night. After working from sunrise to sunset on bare boards with a meager fire and no other comfort except thoughts of family members they had not seen in 11 months and whom they might never see again. A new poem by Marion Harland appeared in the April 1855 issue of Southern Literary Messenger. It was significant because the messenger was among the first prestigious publications in the region, one which Mary Hawes and her family religiously read aloud to one another, and because it had been the messenger's editor, John Reuben Thompson, who rejected the manuscript of a loan two years earlier. By October of 1854, Thompson had come to see the error in his judgment, and from his office at University of Virginia, penned a glowing review of the novel. He marveled at the sales and critical attention it had received from both North and South, and admitted that the book no longer needed his friendly article to bring it before the eye or commend it to the regard of the public. Redpath's nationwide publicity barrage had impelled Thompson to eat his words, and Mary Hawes was delighted. Given the messenger's avowed pro-slavery politics, it might be somewhat surprising that Harlan's poem was reprinted in July on the first page of the Kansas Herald of Freedom, a paper launched expressly for the purpose of representing anti-slavery interests in the disputed territory. As if he were leaving breadcrumbs for scholars like myself, James Redpath signals that he has arrived in Kansas. He was there, ostensibly, to cover Kansas's progress towards statehood, following the adoption of the controversial Kansas-Nebraska Act, which charged each territory seeking statehood with determining by popular sovereignty whether slavery would be permitted within its borders. As usual, Redpath had both an official capacity and an ulterior motive he realized that the Kansas troubles would probably create a military conflict. He did not intend to leave this to chance. 
in what amounts to an almost treasonous confession. He says in the roving editor, I left the South and went to Kansas and endeavored personally and by my pen to precipitate a revolution. Redpath came to Canvas as an, Kansas as an official correspondent for three influential newspapers, the New York Tribune, Chicago Tribune, and the St. Louis Democrat. All three had large circulations and were centerpieces of the newspaper exchange and reprinting networks, assuring that the dispatches which Redpath wrote would gain an interstate and even international audience. John McKivigan asserts that by the spring of 1856, Redpath had become a celebrity journalist whose influence was visible to the political establishment. No longer laboring in obscurity, Redpath soon secured book contracts, lecturing fees, and positions of influence within the Republican Party. He would speak at their first national convention later that year. In addition to these powerful platforms, Redpath retained his extensive network of connections with editors and publishers. And, of course, he possessed the capacity to ingratiate himself at will to fellow members of the trade, like George Washington Brown, the Pennsylvania editor who migrated to Kansas in 1855 to launch the Kansas Herald of Freedom. As Brown's presence indicates, there were numerous anti-slavery reporters in Kansas. But as one such reporter put it, Redpath was the only one made up entirely of a compound of glycerine and gun cotton. Redpath operated as a kind of counterintelligence agent. He could anticipate how the pro-slavery machine would cover the events in Kansas, and he knew how to imitate their tactics and reproduce their infrastructure. The success Redpath and his collaborators had building a powerful anti-slavery media in eastern Kansas is evidenced by the fact that as early as May 1856, a pro-slavery militia risked escalating the violence between themselves and militant abolitionists in order to invade the town of Lawrence. The only building they torched was the one which housed the Kansas Herald of Freedom, and George Brown was among the only prisoners they took. The militia's commander claimed the Herald's printing office was, in fact, an armory. Redpath likely would have agreed that the press was a weapon for making war. But he was 30 miles away when the Missouri militia invaded Lawrence, utilizing the offices of another editor, Mark DeLahey, proprietor of the Leavenworth Territorial Register. By the time the border ruffians threw DeLahey's press into the Kansas River, Redpath had secured the delivery of a new one to Lawrence. Redpath was reckless with his own life and the lives of others, and dispatches which increasingly broke through the filter bubble of the Southern propaganda machine. Redpath wrote, as one correspondence for the St. Louis Republican put it, in bloodthirsty terms. He wanted to make both Northern and Southern audiences believe that the militant abolitionists were on the verge of raising a mercenary army in Kansas, and by doing so, to incite pro-slavery guerrillas to further attacks on settler communities, which would outrage their out-of-state allies. 
The speediest way of abolishing slavery, Redpath insisted, is to incite a few scores of rattling insurrections and by a little wholesome slaughter arouse the conscience of the people against the wrong embodied in Southern institutions. The South will never liberate her slaves unless compelled by fear to do so. Bleeding Kansas was the result of a calculated maneuver which activists and political organizers have been replicating ever since. The legitimacy of a grassroots movement on a national stage depends upon the ability to compete for mass media attention. Prominent publications are frequently reluctant to publicize what they regard as fringe politics. But there is one reliable method for fringe coalitions to get their message into the mainstream the resilient consumer appeal of sensationalized violence. Carnage sells, and in so doing, renders both victims and perpetrators visible to the public. Political violence is not delegitimizing. To the contrary, it is nothing short of an imperative to normalization of a political cause. Political violence forces the mainstream press to expand their representation of the partisan spectrum to include those who, though they may be labeled radical, are undeniably making news. Militant abolitionists like Redpath believe they could only ensure the introduction of their interest into partisan politics by provoking pro-slavery forces to shed blood, or by shedding blood themselves. In the midst of the Wakarusa War, in the winter of 1855, Redpath wrote to Hawes, convinced that he would not survive. If I am not killed in the fight, you will hear from me again and again, he promised. Should I be translated to another sphere, I shall still, if possible, wrap back notice of your work through mediums. She heard nothing more for two months and feared Redpath dead. She admitted... I had grown to like him, and my gratitude for his disinterested championship was warm and deep. Even her father had come to see Redpath, as he put it, as the wandering Jew, and was certain that he would find safe deliverance from the pro-slavery hordes. Even in Richmond, hearts were thawing. In the coming years, Mary Hawes would marry a northern minister, move to New Jersey, pledge allegiance to the Union, and paint a more ambivalent picture of antebellum Virginia in her novels. Bleeding Kansas was an overwhelming victory for militant abolitionists. David Potter calls it one of the most decisive victories ever won in a propaganda war. But Redpath was always at his best when he had, as he did in Marion Harland, somebody to advocate for. In the summer of 1856, Redpath stumbled into the camp of a guerrilla force which was rumored to be responsible for the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre, the execution of five pro-slavery sympathizers for, according to Redpath, organizing a lynching. He had found the meteor of the war. Redpath's discriminating eye for talent is evidenced in his immediate and full-throated advocacy for John Brown, who, when they met, was little more than a notable fugitive. 
Two days later, at the Battle of Blackjack, Brown and his small gang of sharpshooters would use superior strategic position and a little deception to take prisoner a much larger U.S. cavalry force sent to capture them. Redpath described Brown as a remarkable character, of whom I shall have much to say if the war continues. Redpath was a star maker and Brown became the protagonist of Red Path's newspaper dispatches, as well as his ideological lodestar. He consciously constructed a mythic John Brown for the Yankee and the Bostonian, romanticizing the captain's eerie intensity and his military skill. Whereas Red Path was a charismatic and well-educated publicity man who moved easily between stratospheres of society, Brown was a zealot. His fanaticism was what made him an epochal figure around whom diverse collectives eventually rallied. It also made him profoundly antisocial. It fell to Redpath to prime Eastern abolitionists for the arrival of their meteor. During their mutual travels in New England in 1857, Redpath introduced Brown to politicians and philanthropists, helped him find venues for speaking and fundraising, and generally acted as the agent for a desirable but difficult celebrity. Redpath was confident that though much of what he said about his client was hyperbolic, Brown would do quite enough to back it up. Brown's legacy was cemented, of course, by his ill-fated raid on Harper's Ferry. The force which took the armory was comprised of many of the same men he had known since bleeding Kansas, but Redpath was evasive on the question of how well he knew the details of Brown's plan. Historians have likewise found the evidence inconclusive. Redpath was certainly a member of the so-called Secret Six who bankrolled Brown. He spent portions of the year following the raid as a fugitive, pursued by federal marshals and hiding out with allies, including William Dean Howells. Redpath's private correspondence also reveals that he engaged in plots to rescue Brown prior to his execution, which were abandoned, in part because Brown himself discouraged them. As usual, Redpath's service to Brown is most evident in how he frames the Harper's Ferry's raid for the public, both leading up to and following the execution of the conspirators. Most of the Secret Six and other outspoken militants, including Frederick Douglass, fled the country, went into hiding, or at least refrained from public comment in the days following the raid. In the immediate aftermath, Brown was widely characterized as a treasonous terrorist, even by many self-identified abolitionists. Redpath, however, even as he was eluding arrest, composed a series of widely reprinted articles for the Boston Traveler, in which he enthusiastically defended Brown's actions referring to Harper's Ferry as Bunker Hill South, and promising, if his mission was to render slavery insecure, he will die a successful man. Via the Traveler columns, Redpath inspired, perhaps more accurately shamed, fellow anti-slavery writers into lifting their unofficial moratorium. As McGivigan puts it, other voices praising Brown would soon be heard in the North, but Redpath had earned the distinction of being the first and the most uncompromising. Redpath threw his energy into making John Brown a mar martyr. 
He interviewed former Kansas guerrillas, corroborated Brown's movements with members of the Secret Six, solicited accounts of Brown's lectures from eyewitnesses, including Henry David Thoreau, and borrowed personal correspondence from Brown's wife and sons. The hagiography he produced was rigorously documented, enough to still be relied upon by Brown scholars. And the 407-page first edition of The Public Life of Captain John Brown was published only five weeks after Brown was executed. Redpath and his publishing house, Thayer and Eldridge, opted to rely heavily on the nascent door-to-door subscription market, just as Twain famously would. It was a risky proposition, one which implies they were betting the story of Brown's life would appeal as much to readers in rural and small-town markets as it did to affluent Bostonians. The biography sold 10,000 copies a month right out of the gate, and nearly 75,000 in the first year, a faster pace even than Twain's famously successful first book, The Innocents Abroad. Thayer and Eldridge jumped at the chance to publish Echoes of Harper's Ferry, a collection edited by Redpath, later the same year. Echoes features speeches, essays, and poems produced by those who had been moved in the intervening months, perhaps with a little gentle prodding from Redpath, to lionize Brown, including Howells, Thoreau, Louisa May Alcott, Lydia Maria Child, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and John Greenleaf Whittier. Redpath used his preface and editorial notes to further shame supposed abolitionists, notably Henry Warren Beecher, who continued to advocate gradualism. Agitation is good when it ultimates in action, Redpath wrote. Sarcasm, wit, denunciation, and eloquence are excellent preparatives for pikes, swords, rifles, and revolvers, but of themselves, they never yet liberated a slave nation in this world, and they never will. During the years in which Bleeding Kansas was unfolding, Samuel Clemens had himself entered the gig economy of U.S. publishing as a typesetter and printer's apprentice. He was not as itinerant nor precocious as Redpath, but over the course of three years, he was employed in printing offices in St. Louis, New York, Cincinnati, Hannibal, Muscatine, and Keokuk. As part of the guilds in two neighboring states, he undoubtedly consumed both press reports and gossip from Kansas. That Twain would refer to Redpath as Osawatomie Brown's right-hand man as late as 1906, when the nation had largely forgotten both Redpath and Bleeding Kansas, suggests how much of an impression these events made upon him. The Osawatomie nickname all but disappeared after the Harper's Ferry raid, but Twain remembered and resolutely admired Redpath's role as both a journalist and a participant in the Kansas struggle. He carried his life in his hands, Twain writes, as they were constantly being hunted by the Jayhawkers, pro-slavery Missourians, guerrillas, modern freelances. The chief ingredient in Redpath's makeup were honesty, sincerity, kindliness, and pluck. He wasn't afraid. If Twain knew even a little of what Redpath had done on behalf of Mary Hawes and John Brown from 1854 to 1860, It would explain why, in 1869, he sought out Redpath in Boston and implored him to be his agent. 
Redpath would act as Twain's publicist and primary booking agent for the next three years, during which Twain became the most coveted lecturer on the Lyceum circuit around which Redpath built his agency. The two men spent countless hours together in far-flung boarding houses, on overnight trains, and in the agency's Boston offices, where Twain met Frederick Douglass and other Redpath clients, many of them anti-slavery icons. He came to believe, just as Redpath had, that national celebrity was attainable for a civilian, but only if he was willing to expose himself to audiences beyond the coastal metropolises and traffic in controversial opinion. Twain's burlesque sketches were reprinted in papers across the interior, and The Innocents Abroad, a scandalous satire of American affluence, was sold to a populist readership by the dusty traveling salesman of the American Publishing Company. But it was Redpath who persuaded Twain to go meet that readership in person, and to call them rubes to their faces, while making them laugh until it hurt, a feeling they would remember every time they heard his name thereafter. This has been a production from the Center for Mark Twain Studies. To find out more about our programming, fellowships, and teaching resources, please visit marktwainstudies.org. And check back next week for new episodes featuring Todd Thompson and Avery Blankenship. Mm-hmm.